Welcome to Common Thread. We hope you find these lessons helpful, but also we'd like to get to know you. If you go to our website slash newcomer, we'll send you an email, some things to read about the community, and an invitation to a personal chat. If you're here in Raleigh, maybe face-to-face. If not, on Zoom. We hope you will. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. Okay, here's the lesson. Last week's section of the lesson, Oneness People in a Two-ness World. But today we're going to take a break, and I will get back to that starting next week. Uh, But for today... I want to emphasize one more time uh, before November is out, this essential skill of the spiritual life, intentional gratitude. So we're going to talk again about intentional gratitude. Here are the questions that we'll talk about afterwards. Two questions from our guided meditation. Be thinking about something good that you have found in a hard time, in a time of trouble, something good that you have found for which you are grateful. And today's question, setting aside the kind of socially imposed inhibitions about self-promotion, what is something about you that you are grateful for, a gift that you have or an ability, an approach to life, an experience, a habit. What is something about you that you are grateful for? And in the lesson today, you're going to hear about how we express our gratitude through things that we do. So also be thinking together about things that we can do, acts of goodness, compassion, and kindness that are here now, small, doable. What are ways that we can express our gratitude in action? So those will be the questions that we'll be talking about afterwards. I'll give you a little time to be thinking. Let me introduce you to this guy. His name is Brother David. Uh, He's a Benedictine monk, and I do not know much about him except that for several years, I have keep running into a quote of his every time I've been thinking about gratitude. Uh, Because his quote gets to the heart of why intentional is part of the practice of gratitude. Here's his quote. He said, It's not happiness that makes us grateful, but gratefulness that makes us happy. It's not happiness that makes us grateful, but gratefulness that makes us happy. And it's that causal effect that is at the core of the intentional part of this practice. We've seen several times how our brains carry a negativity bias. Nine positive things, one negative thing, but that negative thing, that's where our focus goes. And by acting on gratitude, by stirring it up on purpose, saying the words, and as we'll see today, doing the things, we actually can make ourselves happier. So it makes sense why there would be so many be thankful texts in our ancient scriptures. Here's one of them. First Thessalonians, in all circumstances, be grateful. In all circumstances, be thankful. In everything, let yours be a heart of gratitude, for this is the divine way. Well, today, I'm going to tell you about this sour-faced guy. Uh, his name is Thomas Erskine. I'm going to read to you a quote fr- of his from about 300 years ago. And we are going to see, ah, maybe not judge a book by its cover because sour face, but maybe not so sour inside. Erskine lived in the 1700s in Scotland. And there, at that time, there was a sect of Christianity, it was called Calvinism, that had become the dominant religion of the day. And as religions go, Scottish Calvinism was a pretty rigid and pretty hard-nosed well. And he did a lot of writing. And he wrote a lot about the rigidity of the religion of his time and place. Because he was also a deeply spiritual man. Spiritual in the experience, the indwelling divine kind of way. So he wrote in order to push up against his time and his place. And he insisted that while God cannot be contained in any thought that we think, or any doctrine that we can espouse, While God cannot be contained, God can be experienced. And when we experience the divine most deeply, what we experience is love. God is love, God is love, God is love. So he was writing an important corrective to a religion that had lost its way. It's the experience of love, that was his contention, that corrects us when 
we lose our ways. Now, here's what had happened in his religion, in his time. They'd gotten a wrapped around the axle of a concept, of an idea. They had focused their thinking so much about the divine around the issue of power that they had lost their imagination around the divine of love. Now, as human beings tend to do, they had seen the wisdom of one concept, but had lost sight of a balancing concept. So they had been going down the rabbit hole of imagining God through the lens of divine power. And at the same time, they were carrying in their heads, as is very common even today, but was especially common then, an image of God that was shaped like a human being. Uh, God would think thoughts like a human being, think thoughts would have emotions, like a human being would have emotions, would act with uh, agency the way human beings act with agency. So they focused their imagination about God, about ultimacy, on ultimate power. Omnipotence was the word they used. Saying to themselves, the divine is not subject to rules. The divine is the source of rules, which seen in one way is a very helpful insight. Because when we realize that we ourselves are not the masters of the universe, it helps us realize our limits. It helps us recognize what we are not responsible for, what we are not in charge of. It is a constant human temptation to stress over, to grind over, to strive over things that we cannot change. And the insight that there is a reality bigger than ourselves, an organizing reality that is not us, this can be a very helpful insight. But again, latch on to one truth and lose sight of another, and sure enough, trouble. And for them, this is how the trouble showed up. It showed up around the notion of heaven and hell. They hadn't yet discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. That wasn't until the 1940s and the 1960s. So they still believed that the scripture texts that were written about the end of a very specific historical regime of oppression for the Jewish people, written about Babylon or written about Assyria or written about Rome, they believed that those texts had been written about the end of time, about the end of life, and about the end of the world. So they had organized their whole religion around getting to heaven in the afterlife and avoiding hell. So with that working in their minds and working with this very human imagination about God, God as father or God as king or God as judge, and again, helpful in one context, harmful in another, putting together those two truths that are not big enough and sure enough, trouble. And the trouble went like this. They imagined because some folks are going to go to heaven and some folks are going to go to hell, must be God made it so. Because God is all-powerful. Nothing happens beyond God's power. So it must be that God, who, remember, thinks and acts the way that a human being thinks and acts, God decides, because that's what human beings do, they decide, God decided from the very beginning who was going to go to heaven and who was going to go to hell? Because again, nothing happens beyond God's power. And oh no, maybe it's me. Or maybe it's not me. Now, what they didn't do was question how they imagined God. What they didn't do was question their assumptions about the afterlife. Now, I bet that they didn't even like the conclusions that they had come to, but their story began painting them into a smaller and smaller corner. Because once you tell that story, before long you start to feel it. And they began to feel the implications of their predetermined fate. I sure hope that God chose me for heaven and not for hell. I sure hope that God did not create me for eternal torment in the afterlife. But if he didn't, if he didn't choose me, then I'm in a heap of trouble. 
And if he, even if he did, I better shape up and fly right because if I am chosen for eternal torment, maybe I can change God's mind with my actions. Maybe I can demonstrate to God, see, I am good. See, I am one of the good ones. Really, I am. Once things are set from the beginning, predetermined, nothing we can do about it. And once a very real option for that predetermined outcome is eternal, unending suffering. That's a hard, hard story. And tell a hard story long enough, and before long we become hard people. Tell ourselves that our Father in heaven created some people who never had a chance predetermined before they were born to suffer ongoing eternal torment. This is a hard, hard world. And sure enough, the Scottish Christians had become a hard people. How could they not? Once that is just the way things are, sour people, not far behind. Harsh people, Strict people, exacting, unbending. Once those assumptions about the nature of things seep into our souls, how could we but become harsh people? So they had. They had become a pretty rigid bunch. And they had become a bunch that were pretty condemning of other people because they were, at the core of their narrative, deeply afraid that this human-shaped God in the sky was rigid and was condemning and quite possibly had be, was rigid and condemning of them, them very, their very selves. And it was to that group of people that our new friend, Tom, was writing people caught up in this harsh, harsh religious narrative. And so when he wrote to them, a primary focus was the love of the divine. Whatever ultimacy is, whatever this thing that we call God is, we get closest to experiencing it when we experience love. Now, he was a prolific writer. We're getting ready for the quote now. But of all the things that he wrote... This quote stands out. Religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. Religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. When we distill religion down, when we discern the essence of the spiritual life, what we find there at the bedrock is love. When we discern the surest foundations of our reality, what we discern is love. When we touch the face of ultimacy, what we touch is love. Love for ourselves, love for one another, and love for truth and for beauty and for goodness. Love is. It is the deepest and the realest that humans can experience. The deepest and realest that human experience has available, has to offer. And further, he wrote, love is not something just for the select among us. It is not just for the predetermined and the selected nor is it something that we earn by good behavior. It is not earned because we have found the right religion. It is not earned because we have prayed the right prayer. It is not earned because we did the right rituals. No, love simply is. The basic foundation of the divine, of ultimacy, the cornerstone of this reality in which we awaken and find ourselves is love. And when we walk the spiritual journey, when we do the spiritual practices, when we have the spiritual insights, when our souls are awakened along the way, love is what we discover at the very foundation of that spiritual life. It sits there waiting for us, unearned, often 
undeserved, not hard-won, not merit-based, not predetermined. We find love on this spiritual journey that just is. And our ancient scriptures sum that concept up, that journey up, with one word, and that word is grace. Grace tells us that this foundational reality of love just is. Nothing that you or I do or do not do changes it. It just is. Religion is grace. It is simply awakening to this unearned foundation, awakening to the way things are at the deepest and the truest level. When we get as close as we can get to the divine, love just is. Now what religion does, what spiritual practice does, is just give us a pathway to get to the place where we can actually see that. See what already is. All the spiritual practices are about getting to the place where we discern what was always already there. Love just is. It is toward us, it resides in us, and it flows through us. Love just is. And when we get past all the brain biases that we've been talking about in this lesson about uh, how to be bridge builders with the other, when we get past the brain biases and the evolutionary fears, all the things that would hijack us, what we find at the bedrock is a love that just is. And so, Tom continued, now let's talk about ethics. Let's talk about doing good. Let's talk about being good people. What ethics is, is simply responding to the deep realization that the very foundation of all that is, is love. Ethics is gratitude for this reality into which we awaken on the spiritual journey. Ethics is a grateful response to the always is love that is at the center of things. So ethics and morality and lives well lived, these are gratitude responses to the deepening experience of divine goodness and life and truth and beauty and love. Gratitude, more than a feeling, gratitude, a response to the deeper nature of things. And we respond to the deeper nature of things with ethical living, moral living, kindness and goodness and compassion, which are our gratitude being lived out. The way that we treat people, gratitude for a reality rooted in love. The way that we do business on behalf of and for the good of other people, gratitude. Raising our children to treat others well, gratitude. Supporting our city and our schools and our own spiritual community, gratitude. Being good neighbors on our block and in our, on our planet, gratitude. Ethics is gratitude. Get any story stuck in our heads that hides from us that the deepest reality of all is love, and that story will also blind us to gratitude. And blinded to gratitude, before long, we start behaving badly. We get blind to ethics. We get blind to morality. Our hands become unskilled in ethics. Our worlds become narrowed. We get stingy. We get selfish. We reduce life to the lowest common denominator of taking care of me and mine. We become hard people. And that's what had happened to the Scottish Christians in the 1700s. They'd reduced their lives to rigid observance because they feared a mean-spirited deity. They had a story that blinded them to 
the basic bedrock foundation that the divine is love. Now, any story that hides us from love will hide us from the deepest and truest of experiences. And any story that does that will hide us from gratitude and will eventually hide us from ethics. So, we return every year to intentional gratitude. Not waiting for a spontaneous burst of feeling, we stir ourselves and we say to ourselves, Self, I insist, I insist that you see the world and the goodness that is in it. I insist, self, that you see the love, you see what is true, you see what is beautiful. And I insist, self, that you now be grateful and that you be thankful. And then, self, I insist, you act on it. You act on that gratitude and live your daily life intentionally. Live out your daily life with ethics and with morality and with kindness and with goodness and with compassion, self, I insist. So, Abraham Lincoln didn't just establish our Thanksgiving. He established a lot of uh, days for national gratitude. But in 1863, uh, two years before the end of the Civil War, he made it national and he made it ongoing. His proclamation noticed how we are so prone to forget what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. So he said, let's set apart the last Thursday of November as a day to give thanks. And he wrote in the proclamation, I recommend that while we are offering up our gratitude, let us also be penitent for our national disobedience, ethics. And I commend you to think of, to pray for, those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in this lamentable civil strife. Lincoln, like Erskine, understood that in the context of gratitude, our thinking changes, and then our actions change. Stir ourselves to see the bigger picture, get past our negativity bias, speak out the words of gratitude, and next we turn to kindness and care. Care for widows and orphans, for mourners and sufferers. Jesus, Jesus taught us the same thing. See the bigger picture and you will see love. And when you do, you will respond with gratitude and care for those around you who hurt. Care for those around you who are wounded. Care for those around you who are in need. Gratitude evokes action. Intentional action. Purposeful action. All right, we're getting near the end, so here are the questions again. Give you some time to think. Religion is grace. Ethics is gratitude. Ethics is action. Gratitude, reactionary action. So, I hope this month, maybe because it is just our national heritage, maybe because of the focus during our lessons and meditations, maybe because just of habit. I hope you've got this habit. I hope this month you have spoken out the words of gratitude. And I hope that we collectively together have made November this time to do that. But here's the thing. There is another step beyond the speaking of the words of gratitude. And that becomes the focus not just of November, but of next month and the month after that and the month after that. A year expressing gratitude in action. A year of expressing gratitude by speaking out words of encouragement to someone who is discouraged. A year of uh, acting on gratitude by assisting someone who needs help. Directing our monies to something bigger than ourselves. Acting on our gratitude all year through. So when we talk about working the circle, we got the four quadrants. We got the communal and the contemplative practices, the learning and the serving practices. Each of those four quadrants is an opportunity to act on love. Every time you step into the communal quadrant and begin to practice spiritual friendship with another, we create the space in which someone else can thrive and flourish and grow. 
every time we work on self-awareness together, every time we practice, uh, we learn the Enneagram and practice the deconstruction together, every time we go through and help one another practice our contemplative uh, meditation and things like that, every time we work in the service quadrant, we are expressing gratitude. So as every year, this year you're going to hear lots of invitations to lots of spaces where you can act on love. Love for your community. Love for your neighbor. Love for your city. Love for someone that you can stand with who hurts and work on the systems that hurt people. In November each year, we prepare ourselves for purpose. We make plans to do something good, to act on love, to do something thoughtful, something that takes intent and sacrifice and time and energy. We make a plan for goodness and insist of ourselves, self, find a way, a here now small doable way, but find a way to live our religion, to live out our ethics, our morality, our goodness rooted in the experience of the foundational reality of love and our gratitude for what we discern. And so, in Dwelling Divine, may we keep finding our way out of toxic stories and finding our way into truer and truer stories and may we experience the bedrock reality of love and goodness and gratitude. And may we organizing our lives around gratitude, live lives of ethics and morality and kindness and compassion and goodness. Amen. Well, I'm uh, really curious.
We'd love to connect with you in real life. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. And if you'd like to take an ownership stake in the well-being of the community, we all contribute online. You'll find a donate button at the top of our website. See you next time. We'd love to connect with you in real life. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. And if you